Welcome back to the program. I'm old enough to remember that many years ago in Hollywood, someone once remarked that the amount of bad screenplays increased with the advent of the copying machine. The same claim was made when word processing and screenwriting software came along. The fact is that there's just a lot of bad writing that goes on in many areas. Today, much of the blame gets heaped on email or texting or technology in general or just kids today. In fact, the issues are more nuanced, more complex, and not quite as rigid as some would wish. These are some of the conclusions reached by my guest, Harvard professor Steven Pinker. Steven Pinker is the Johnstone Family Professor of Psychology at Harvard. He's chair of the Usage Panel of the American Heritage Dictionary and one of the world's foremost writers on language, mind, and human nature. It is my pleasure to welcome Steven Pinker back to this program to talk about his new work, The Sense of Style, the Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in the 21st Century. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. In your previous work and in a lot of the work that you've done, you've written a lot about and talked a lot about the mind and psychology and how we think. In looking at it in the context of language and the things you write about in the sense of style, talk a little bit about the nexus between clarity of thought and clarity of writing. And is the reverse true? Is a lot of bad writing the result of or responsible for bad thinking? Uh, certainly it goes both ways. And uh, sometimes writing is bad because the writer doesn't know what the, they're trying to say but may have, may have nothing to say. But even clear thinkers who do have something to say can be wretched writers. Uh, and the the challenge of putting your thoughts, even when they are well-formed into words, is, is a formidable one. And, uh, and I primarily deal not with how to think clearly, but with uh, how to translate your thoughts in, in, into words. Right. Uh, although I do talk a little bit about what goes into clear thinking as well. Is the reverse true? Does a lot of the bad writing and the lack of clarity in writing today in some ways contribute to bad thinking, to bad analysis and discussion? Well, it certainly leads to a lot of frustration and confusion and misunderstanding as uh, poorly drafted instructions for uh, how to fill out your taxes, how to set up a wireless home network, uh, what you're responsible for when you sign up to a health club. Uh, a lot of that is uh, avoidable if the, the prose was written more clearly. Um, it, uh, but you know, but I don't. I don't want to say that um, if you only get your ideas in line, then the good writing will follow. Because there's a lot of skill that just goes into just the, the craftsmanship of prose, even when you know what it is you want to say. As you talk about, the very fact is that good writing, clear writing, is really hard to do. It is. There are a lot of challenges that you have to overcome. There are some purely psychological challenges, like. Um, Overcoming the curse of knowledge. This is the difficulty that we all have in imagining what it's like not to know something that we do know. When we know something, it just seems so obvious that we assume that everyone else knows it too. And, uh, it, uh, we project our own knowledge to others, and so we don't bother spelling out the abbreviations or defining the technical terms or, or the jargon or providing examples or describing things in concrete language. So that's, that's the first step in becoming a, a decent writer. But it's only the first step, because there are others as well. When we talk about bad writing today, where is most of that bad writing? Is it in literature, nonfiction, journalism, business writing, legalese? Where, where is the predominance of bad writing and lack of clarity today? 
Um, uh, sad to say, academia is a uh, my, my the world that I live in <laughs> is one of the worst offenders. Um, although you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of blame to go around. There's a lot of uh, corporate blather, uh, uh, business cliches like you know drilling down to our core competencies and and uh, thinking outside the box to develop metrics. Uh, and there's uh, uh, a lot of boilerplate coming out of government and, and uh, corporations. There's a lot of impenetrable, unnecessarily complicated legalese. The idea that legal language has to be as complicated as it is to uh, state things precisely enough to stand up in court, it turns out to be false, that it's uh, a lot of legal language is completely uh, dispensable. There's no need to ever use the expression the party of the first part, <laughs> for example. <laughs> so there, there's a lot of blame to go around. In fact, in the legal profession, there's been a movement for a little while now. I don't know how much it, it, it's caught on, but a movement to get away from some of that legalese, to be a little bit more clear in meaning and writing. Absolutely. There are plain language laws in a number of states and countries. There are clear language associations that try to promote clear language in, in regulations and in contracts, because the... the um, Consequences of bad writing are are uh, can be catastrophic. They can lead to uh, accidents like the the um, near meltdown at Three Mile Island from a, a badly worded sign on a on a, uh, a gauge. They can lead to decades of expensive litigation, and they can just lead to lots of frustration as you you know, you read it seven times and you still don't know what what the what the rule says or or whether you can declare it or not or. Uh, how you're supposed to to pro set the, the the time on your digital alarm clock? Uh, vast amounts of, of frustration and waste and damage. One of the things you talk about is different styles in writing and the need for different styles in different situations, which on a certain level seems obvious but hasn't been. Why is that? Yeah, a lot of people think that there's just this thing called the English language. And so you get oh, I, I, what I consider to be a lot of uh, wasted rhetoric on what's Twitter doing to the language and what's the messaging doing to the language. And the thing is, there's no such thing as the language. We use language in different ways depending on the people we're talking to and the occasion. You really don't use the same kind of language when you ask uh, someone to, to pass the butter over the dinner, the breakfast table, as you would use in a uh, State of the Union address or a funeral oration uh, or a, uh, a, a briefing to to a colleague. Um, there are always many styles. Uh, I think that. There is one particular style that I talk about, classic style. Mm -hmm. That's more or less what people aim for in good essays, reviews, articles, nonfiction books. Uh, it's the style that I think people should, should work toward mastering, but it's not the only style. And talk about the other styles and the other opportunities for styles to be more dramatic in certain cases, to be more elegant and graceful in certain cases, and that that has a place as well. Yes, yeah, so the classic style, I should say what it is, it's, um, this is a term from uh, Mark Turner and Francine Noel Thomas, a couple of uh, uh, literary scholars. It refers to a style where the writer and the reader are equals. The writer has noticed something in the world that the reader has not yet noticed, and the writer tries to draw the reader's attention to it by using conversation. Uh, so it's a form of joint attention, and this is what leads to a nice 
clear, vigorous essay, and the opposite leads to flabby, turgid academies. But there are other styles. There's contemplative or romantic style, where instead of the writer noticing something in the world that, and calling a reader's attention to it, the writer might be trying to share some personal, ineffable, subjective, uh, introspective reaction, trying to convey a, a mood or, or, or a response. A lot of essays in The New Yorker have that character. There's uh, oracular style, where the speaker has seen, has some vision that mere mortals have not yet attained, and he's doing his best to uh, share that vision to the masses. Uh, there is a practical style where you're simply trying to get uh, deliver information to someone who needs it, like how to fill out a tax return. And then there's uh, ironic or um, self-conscious style where you're trying to prove that you are not naive about how hard it is to know anything. And a lot of academies uh, comes from self-conscious style. You're, you're terrified that someone might think that you're naive about how easy it is to know anything about anything. And so you're constantly apologizing and evading and saying you don't really mean it, and you know how difficult and complex uh, everything really is, and so you never get around to describing anything. As we look at these different styles, what is the responsibility on the reader, and what should the writer expect of the reader in terms of, of the knowledge or the common sense that the reader brings to bear? Uh, first, there, there always has to be some calibration of writing to the sophistication of the audience. If you're a molecular biologist writing for other molecular biologists, then you don't have to spell out what a transcription factor is every time. You, you could assume that everyone knows that. On the other hand, there is a massive bias that we all have to assume too much. Uh, and it's not just when scientists say write for the public. Often when scientists write for other scientists, they assume too much. Uh, I find myself baffled by articles in my own field that are written for, for, for the likes of me, that the uh, author just assumed that something was obvious, and I, I never heard of it, even though I've been in the business for, for 35 years. So in general, yes, calibrate, and, but uh, realize that you are probably going to aim too high in terms of knowledge. But uh, on the other hand, don't confuse um, condescension with clarity. Uh, the point of clear writing isn't that you treat your, your audience like they're, they're, they're uh, morons or, or children. You assume that your reader is as intelligent and as sophisticated as you are, but just doesn't know what you know, doesn't know one thing that you know that you're trying to share there and then. So there's a big difference between uh, patronizing and, between, and um, uh, anticipating your audience's knowledge. Talk about the role of imagery and creating imagery with language in a world in which the image is becoming, in and of itself, more and more important and taking a larger and larger role in how we view and understand things. Well, the uh, imagery has always been important in how we understand things, so I don't think this is a, uh, a new development. And in fact, if you go back to writing guides that were written a century ago, uh, well before television movies uh, were popular, they also emphasized the, the concrete, the visual, the tactile. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're primates. We, uh, um, most of our brain is devoted to uh, touching and hearing and uh, seeing and moving. We've got this thin overlay of abstract conceptual 
cognition that uh, is plastered down over all of our, our, our primate brains. But ultimately, you can't understand something unless you can see it in the mind's eye. And uh, if you talk about uh, social avoidance, uh, it's not as good as if you talk, if you're a scientist, as if you talk about you know, mice avoiding other mice. If you talk about uh, wildlife mitigation measures, it's better to say trapping birds uh, and, and so on. And a big sin of a lot of writing, not just from, from scientists, but from uh, corporate uh, boilerplate hacks, from, from uh, uh, legalese, and uh, comes from using highfalutin abstract verbiage instead of just concrete descriptions of things that people can see and hear for themselves. How did we evolve to a point of so much jargon, so much legalese, so much of that abstract kind of language that you're talking about? Well, we, we all need uh, jargon, um, any specialty, uh, you know, bicycle racing, photography, cooking, uh, sewing, you name it. There have to be technical terms. Otherwise, you have to uh, kind of spool out a, a long-winded description every time you refer to something, and, and it's in the very nature of language that we have uh, crisp summaries for something that, uh, that that we need to refer to a lot. So, you know, a, a, someone in bicycling refers to a de- the uh, derailleur. That's a little doohickey that hangs down at the back of the bike that moves the chain sideways from gear to gear. Uh, it's really not bad that they have that jargon. The problem is when you forget that a lot of the people that you write for have never learned the jargon, and uh, you do have to spell it out for the first time. And writers forget that because they're subject to the curse of knowledge, a difficulty of imagining what it's like not to know something that you know. And then there's the places where jargon bleeds through. Business writing is perhaps the best example of that, where so much of business jargon has filtered down into general conversation. Yes, and there is something that can be uh, extremely annoying about um, meaningless business jargon of drilling down to our core competencies right. and developing parameters that we think outside the box and develop the appropriate metrics for best practices at the bleeding edge, <laughs> where you, you just get the feeling that uh, the, the, the person who's speaking has just turned off their brain and is just cranking out uh, boilerplate. Um, and, and also some kinds of jargon lead a, to a, a, a sort of a pseudo-scientific sophistication that just isn't there in reality, but they kind of you address know, things up by talking about metrics instead of counting. Um, so those, those can be extremely annoying. But on the other hand, there's some uh, jargon that originates in business that's actually quite uh, uh, useful, like incentivize. It, 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 it sounds like a bit of an ugly word the first time you see it, but there are cases in which there's just no crisp substitute. And the age-old guideline, omit needless words, uh, only works if you've got enough single words, and they all start out as jargon, so that you don't have to spell it out. And incentivize is a way of, as opposed to developing incentives for, is a way of omitting needless words. So it's a good thing, even though it grates on people's ears the first time they hear it. Right. I mean, the problem is the excess that often happens with the, with the jargon and with some of this language. Absolutely, and uh, that's why any list of do's and don'ts in language is bound to be unhelpful, mm-hmm. because it is a measure. It is a matter of proportion, of measure, of deciding what you're going to do and what will uh, uh, best uh, accomplish it. 
uh, almost any rule you can find a situation in which it ought to be broken. That's why in, in, when, I, when I wrote The Sense of Style, I tried to avoid lists of commandments, but rather explain the rationale behind the, the traditional rules. Why did anyone think this was a good idea? Is it a good idea? Is it a good idea sometimes, but not other times? And you can, I think, get a better feel for the rules if you understand how language works, how writing works, how the mind uh, uh, uses language, and then you, you get insight into the rules as opposed to thinking of them as uh, commandments that you just have to obey. And what does that mean for traditional style books and rule books and all those things that we're all too familiar with? Well, there, some of the classic ones are, are undoubtedly you know, mostly useful, like uh, the the, uh, the one that's handed to every freshman, the uh, strunk and whites, the elements of style. Um, and there's some good advice in there. Omit needless words. It's not only good advice, but it follows its own advice in the way it's stated. It's three words long. Uh, write with nouns and verbs. Put the emphatic words of the sentence at the end. These are, are, are good guidelines, although they're a little vague. It's kind of like... You know, use your head and everything will, will come out okay. Well, it's, it's certainly true, but it's not particularly helpful. And likewise, omit needless words. Well, yeah, that's a good idea, but how do I know which words are needless? So um, while I, I'm, I, I think Strunk and White is a delightful little book, and I do recommend it, uh, I think we can do better today. We can go a little bit deeper and explain, well, here's what makes a word needless. Also, we can get rid of a lot of the obsolete advice that you find in a lot of these manuals. The language changes over time. Strunk and White were both born in the 19th century. They, the version of English they uh, speak is the version that was spoken in the, in the first couple of decades of the 20th century. And a lot of their advice is, is, is genuinely obsolete. When they say, do not use the verb to contact, it is pretentious slang and jargon. Uh, <laughs> that's bad advice because the contact uh, earned its place in the language. I think most people would be surprised to learn that there was anything, uh, ever anything uh, odd about it. And uh, the, the usage guides ha have to keep up. And there, there, there's lots of obsolete advice in, the, in uh, Strunk and White. Talk about that with respect to the language changing. And, and one of the things you talk about it is that it doesn't change necessarily in any particular direction, that it, that it meanders from time to time. Absolutely. And it's, um, uh, if language, uh, as many um, uh, self-appointed guardians uh, uh, insist, has been deteriorating, then you know you and I could not be having this conversation now because people have been moaning about the decline of language uh, at least since the invention of the printing press, uh, and and here we are discussing you know pretty abstract subject matter. Uh, language changes, but a lot of it is what what mathematicians call a random walk, kind of a drunk, you know, <laughs> kind of wandering around a lamppost, uh, and and it's very hard to predict the direction. Also, not everything changes. A lot of of um, say that, well, if we just allow language to change, our descendants will no longer be able to understand us. But that happens a lot more slowly than you might think. And if you go back to what the purists used to worry about, uh, like they say, well, pretty soon everyone will be saying invidious instead of invidious, or um, uh, mischievous instead of mischievous. Uh, there, there's one famous uh, commentary on language written by Dwight MacDonald more than 50 years ago, where he predicted that the dictionaries of 1988 would be uh, allowing mischievous. 
So I picked up a couple of dictionaries. It was not just 1988, but 2014, an extra extra 25 years. And no, they don't allow mischievous or or, or, uh, invidious. Uh, So a lot of the fear, and in fact, even distinctions like disinterested versus uninterested, uh, enormity versus enormousness, there's a lot of fear that those distinctions would be lost. But open a dictionary, they're still with us. So the language doesn't deteriorate as quickly as a lot of uh, purists think. Talk a little bit about emotional style and, and writing that's really meant to, to wring something out of us. A lot of uh, effective language is, um, is, is concrete. You get a much more um, emotional effect if you say, uh, let's say in the, in the Deep South, um, young uh, um, black men would, were worried that a, a glance at the planter's wife would leave them hanging from an oak tree rather than uh, they were concerned with racial oppression and discrimination. You use those uh, Latinate words with the ending in, in I-O-N and then A-T-E-I-O-N, and uh, it doesn't, doesn't convey the same effect as if you can form an image in your mind's eye and if you stick to the physical. And a big mistake in writing is to think that if you want to, to, to write fine words and, and eloquent language, then you reach for the uh, abstract words, whereas the, the real key is you allow the reader to form images. We talked earlier about the places in which bad writing is frequently seen these days. Where are you seeing really good writing today? Oh, there's a lot of good writing out there, a uh, surprising amount. And, and um, in, in there, there are a lot of excellent blogs. Uh, I find that you know, a lot of product reviews at Amazon are surprisingly well-written. There's also a lot of, of, of flair and pizzazz. Uh, obituaries in the New York Times are written with much more uh, humor and flair than, than, than they used to be when they were just a dry recitation of the, the biographies. A lot of scientists and mathematicians have become uh, clear and stylish and witty writers. Many of my favorite writers are, are mathematicians and scientists. Uh, it's an old tradition going back to Darwin and, and even before that, Galileo, to write in the vernacular and to write for a large audience. And I think we're living in a golden age of science writing. Steven Pinker. The book is The Sense of Style, The Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in the 21st Century. Stephen, it's always a pleasure. I thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.